0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. This is a podcast about old stuff, old books, philosophy, you know, kind of anything further than 100 years back that we kind of want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, That's, that's a good description. Right. Yeah, I like that. My name is A.J. Hannenberg and I'm joined by Thomas Magby. Hello. And Graham Donaldson. Hello. And today we are talking about the same... I mean, it's the same thing I talked about last time. Yeah, like, I why are we, just why figured, are we doing this again?
1: I just figured, you know, we'd gramify it.
2: Oh. <laughs>
0: or no. just, just do it better. Do it, no, the, right, no, do it no. the right way. Yeah, you, exactly. were talking
1: about, you were talking about Aristotle's de anima. So you're talking about Aristotle talking about, like, trying to figure out what the soul is. Plato's tripartite soul is... He's kind of, like, got a different axe to grind with that question.
0: Does de anima sound like a kind of yogurt to you? Danima,
1: um, buy maybe. some Danima yogurt. Right? Yeah, Danima yogurt. Yeah. It's yeah. Delicious. yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, keeps keeps things moving around. <laughs> On motion, <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> helps, like recognized, helps like. with movement. If yeah. you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are. So we've kind of been joking that we should be redoing some of our earlier crappier episodes. It's not. It's not
2: a joke, right? Like, oh,
1: wait. I, I was taking it with humorously. <laughs>
2: Well, you're about to do one, right? Isn't that what's happening? I am. Yeah. So
1: we're going back, and we're going to look at the tripartite soul, this platonic idea. But I kind of want to use it to also talk about um, uh, another thing. It's not so much that it's a platonic idea, but it's very much the, uh, in the classical model of knowing. And it has to do with the rational faculties. Because I think that we as modern people, when we talk about reason, we mean something quite – quite more narrow than it was meant by reason in the ancient world. And so just kind of want to clear that up a little bit. Um, So Plato had this concept that the soul, whatever it is, and AJ's episode last week was Aristotle, Plato's student looking into maybe trying to figure out what the soul actually is. Plato's less concerned about what the soul actually is. And he's more talking about a theory that he has about how the soul functions or how a human person functions with, with a soul like that the soul kind of the has proper the,
0: functioning of the human animal.
1: That's right and, he, and the, Plato does this less because he's concerned about the proper functioning of the human animal and more that he's concerned with the proper functioning of human societies. Be, um, so th- this theory of the soul comes from Plato's Republic where Socrates is trying to investigate the nature of justice. And in order to investigate the nature of justice, they have to invent a fictional society.
0: Mm-hmm, totally uh, right.
1: And then it's like a 10 book odyssey. And by the end, like, children are getting married by casting lots, and and, and we're not teaching children math and all I this. I don't kind see of why stuff. people didn't like Socrates. Yeah. <laughs> Socrates
0: is great. When, with a simple question, they had with to invent
1: an entire society. Oh, yeah. It's like, well, let's really answer this. Um, so Plato says that for the human person, our soul has these three categories, these three parts. You have the rational, you have this what he calls the spirited, and then you've got the appetitive. And the human person has the, is divided into these three parts. So the rational part is um, the thinking part. It's the part that where logic resides, it's the part where you can think through things. It's the part where you make decisions, where you take in all of the data and you come out with it with a decision. Interestingly, Plato and, it, and also sort of people in the ancient world, the rational part of the soul was also where you made moral decisions. So for a person in the classical or in the ancient world, being moral and being rational were the same, were comparable things. Whereas I think when we – at least when I pull my students about this and I say um, where does morality – if you had to like where does morality lie – is it, uh, or or what kind of thing of the soul, as like we're having this conversation, what kind of thing of the soul is morality? And most of the time, students will say what? What do you think, Hannibal? What do they say?
0: Well, so one more time. What well, what do this? they
1: say? Where do they say emotions lie? Like, in the ancient world, they said emotions, sorry, not emotions, uh, um, morality was a was a rational conclusion that you could draw. It's like a feeling, right? Yeah, That's That's that it's a feeling. Now. Like that you is. feel like it's the right you thing feel, to do. I just yeah. feel like this is the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. or you um, can get
2: this weird, like... Uh, like Adam Smith has this thing. It's like uh, morality is this like um, um, empathy, essentially, yes. right? Like the reason you do something is you feel bad or you feel in harmony with something. And yep. so you act a certain way. There's
1: some sort of resonance with, yeah. the, with the thing in yeah. front of you. Um, and maybe there's something to that. But in the classical world, reason was something that was part of, sorry, um, um, morality was part of the rational faculties. Right. Um, that being moral was reasonable, um, anyway, that's kind of a controversial thing. We can, and I, we can drill into that a little bit later. Um, the second part of the soul was the spirited. And the spirited part is that which moves you. Um, that which, uh, it, I guess a really good translation of that could be willpower. It is your will. It is the thing that you need to get. Uh, it needs to be excited in order for the person to do something. Um, and then the last one is the appetitive, and that is the desire. And the appetitive is kind of like it, – it is the part of the soul that is – I sort of think about it as like – I think of the appetitive part of the soul as like a landscape where a lot of it is sort of in daylight, and then it kind of just bleeds out into this like wilderness darkness beyond. Hmm. Like the, the appetitive part of the soul is the part of the soul that if you – if you follow too long, head into it, you are moving into like bestial territory. Like you're becoming more like an animal, and if you are ruled by your appetites, that is what you that that's that. You know, if you are a man ruled by your appetites, you are more of a beast than you are a man. True. and so, I mean, that's that's essentially it. So that, that uh, is now we're not going go to go into talk about how. Plato then thinks society is based on this, and if you if you're interested, Oliciter, in that, you can go back to AJ's wonderful series on the Republic, where he goes into this book by book, and he spends a uh, good time talking about how the uh, how this how the city is based off off of the soul. It's,
0: I mean, really, it's our best series ever. It's our it's probably our best. <laughs> it's series. the best without question, question. Without <laughs> question.
1: Um, uh, society should be run by, uh, the intellect or the society should be run by the smarts, just yeah. like how the brain, how the person should be run by your intellect.
0: And if you're a dumb dumb, know your place, stay know at the bottom place. and raise some goats. Yeah.
1: Raise some goats. Cool. Uh, be an artisan and, uh, that's, that's, <laughs> <laughs> do a podcast. I don't know. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> criticizing all your betters. Yeah, um, <laughs> you hear that? No, I was kidding. Obama.
1: <laughs> is he like a... <laughs> Pardon me. I don't know. Um, okay, so uh, f- so a little fun experiment to really sort of think about these these three parts of the soul is to think about like if you let any one of those parts of the soul rule the man, what kind of man you would have? Because all three of these parts need to be in a specific order. They need to have a specific relationship to one another. For as for what Plato says, for somebody to be a healthy person. Would you say a hierarchy? A hierarchy. Mm, okay. That's right. <laughs> okay. So um, there is a hierarchy in the soul, but, um, and the hierarchy is that the, your reason should make decisions, it should be informed by your appetites, and then those decisions should be carried out by your willpower. That is the healthy person. Is, is that a fair assessment?
0: Is that, yeah, might, is that I'm, Plato I'm, as you understand it? I'm grinning because I love the way you say hierarchy. Oh, have oh I never brought this up? No. How does he say it? You you leave out a syllable. I do entirely. Wait. Say it again. Hierarchy. What Hi-ro- what? Hi-ro- hi- it's oh, hierarchy. I'm sorry. I don't I don't chew on the rrs <laughs> in there. Hierarchy. <Hayır, laughs> no, I told you it's one of my favorite. No, a dog with a so bone. I don't dislike it. Hierarchy. Hierarchy. It's Hire- really fast. Hierarchy. Hierarchy.
1: Um, I like it. I'm a stranger in a strange land. I <laughs> It's it's
0: <laughs> <laughs> one of those little Canadian things that came down with you, and it makes me happy.
1: That's funny. Hierarchy. Um, Anyway, so the healthy person um, makes decisions with their reason. Your reason can be informed by your appetites and then those decisions are carried by the will. So if you Mm -hmm. were somebody who was completely run – so if you let willpower – be the dominant force in your personality. Well, I guess what kind of person would you be?
0: Well, it depends. Yeah. It, it depends which way the willpower rules you. There's a mean, right? Mm, mm-hmm. So no will, and you're a coward, mm-hmm. and you never get anything done. Mm-hmm. You call you call that person the like a slug or a loser, right? You got no will to do the stuff you actually to have to do. That's right. You're not regulating well. You're a layabout. You're yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a huncher. Uh, and then if you have too much will, you are you might be like too intense or foolhardy, right? You're not thinking things mm. through before you do them. You're, You're the guy that's the like,
1: hey, man, jump off the roof. He's like,
0: yes. He <laughs> well, that it. might be too much like, no, he's like, I'm going to do this. He yes. goes out and builds a treehouse, even though he has no idea yeah. how to build a treehouse. He,
1: it's like you can walk into the room by opening the door or busting down the door.
0: And what it might mean is that you have, you have incredible trouble regulating your mm-hmm. appetites, mm-hmm. right? And you don't think things through. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you can be someone who's ruled by their will. And you are, yes, uh, you can be
1: um, too lazy or too foolhardy. Uh, you can be someone who's ruled by their appetites, and that's a pretty straightforward picture. Um, can you be someone... So is there a mean for being ruled by appetites? Obviously, you can be ruled by your appetites in extremity, and that would be unhealthy. But is there a way that you can be ruled by your appetites in in deficiency? Absolutely. Anorexia. I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. If, if you have some sort of... Um, if you have a some sort of strong sense that your desire, all desires are bad for you. Is that it?
0: Yeah. with well, that or I think, I mean, there's an appropriate amount of appetite. Yeah. Right. Where if I have, if I have a wife, I should hunger for her. Like uh, it's at least in like even in the sexual sense. Sure. And if I don't have that, that's probably something, mm-hmm. something not functioning correctly in the marriage, yeah. right? We could have talked about stakes or something, but... I really went for the gold <laughs> with this one, I think. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, yes, exactly. So there's, the, yeah, so there could be an excess or deficiency. And if you were a person ruled by your appetites... I think it's it's apt to say that you are closer to beast than you are to man. At least Play that's what Plato.
0: Maybe is. it's it's like you're you're afraid of your appetites yeah. and so you become ascetic. Yes. Right? Yeah. I, I deny every appetite I have, which is probably too far. So there's
1: the right relationships with one's appetites are that they are regulated with by the reason. Right. They're not if they rule you in excess, you're giving in to them. If they rule you in you think that every single piece of your appetite is somehow Damaging trying or hurtful, or by, yeah, trying to get you, and you're like, and you're an, uh, you're an ascetic. Uh, then that's probably being ruled by your appetites in the negative sense. Mm-hmm. But everything should be ruled by your rational faculties. And the healthy man is is the person for whom, yeah, they are informed by the appetites, but they but they can control them with reason. Now. Um, so I want to, so that's, that's very much, that's basically the platonic soul right there. It's, it's a very helpful little model to think about. Um, but when in the ancient world, when they talked about reason and they talked about the rational faculty, it was much more expansive than the way that we talk about reason, at least, or at least maybe how I thought of reason when I was a kid growing up, or when Same people here. talked about, when people talked about your brain or when people talked about being logical, um, uh, so, when we talk about reason, as modern people, we tend to think of reason as well as what? How would you uh, like? What would be like the the? It's like book smart, or like you read, like you know a lot of the, things. Yeah. It's the work
0: of logic. It's you the are work of figuring logic. things out. Yeah. That's
1: right. So you have uh, an analytical mind. That yep. you are an observer. You are a charter, or you are somebody that can do taxonomies. You are somebody that can put things into categories. Um, if we're talking definition, you're going into, um, you know, you are, you're delegating genuses and species, right? That you, you're, um, um, the realm of, of analysis and, yeah. an, and analytics and data gathering. And that is true of the, of the rational faculties, pardon me, in the rational faculties, but in the ancient world, there was other categories. There was another side of the rational that wasn't just the analytical And the word that they would have for that was the dialectic. And so you had these two things. You had the analytical faculty in the rational faculty, and you had the dialectical faculty in uh, the rational faculty. So let's look look at analysis first. So analysis is very much what it is. If you were going to analyze something, like, AJ, if you were going to analyze, let's say we brought in a frog, and I said, I want you to tell me something that you – I want you to to know this frog – by analyzing it. So I want you to come to a knowledge of the frog through analysis.
0: What what would we do? You're probably hinting at dissection. Yep. Cut that cut that thing up. You would yeah. cut it up. Yeah. But I would probably want to get to know it. No, that, you can't get to know it. That that's I mean, maybe that's part of analysis, but Am I, I'm not allowed to like put food near it and see what food it likes no. or like, no, that's, that's really definitely,
1: not. yeah, you can, yeah. And like see I, what wanna, I don't have to wants.
0: cut it up to get to know this frog. Mm-hmm. Do I, I can look up frog on up. Wikipedia. You can look then, like, him up can, on Wikipedia for sure. And yep. then get to know this frog individually by seeing what kind of, yeah. See what kind of foods he likes. Does he like to hop from high places or does he not? Is he afraid of that? Very good. Now, um,
1: yeah, you, so basically the analysis level of knowing something is through all of the observation. Um, so you can be observing its habitat, observing what it likes to eat. You can put into its categories what kind of frog is it in relationship to other frogs. Does, does it have it, silly feet? Does it have silly feet? Uh-huh. Is it, uh, you know, you eventually you can come up to some sort of genus, some sort of species, and then you can cut it up and see its organs. Yeah, no, I that don't want to stuff. do that part. <laughs> you, you, know, you have to. Yeah, do it. no, oh. no.
0: Um,
1: no, you don't have to do that. Um, but in that relation, in the analytical relationship, you the, the frog is an object is the object. And you are the subject. The verb is you. You are doing the verb. You are verbing that frog.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you are analyzing it. So it's another question: Is the frog
0: comfortable being verbed?
1: Or? I don't know. Um, uh, you can't because you can't talk to it. You don't know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but you are. Are it is the, the object on the table being analyzed, and the, so this and that is a tremendously powerful faculty. The analytical faculty. Mm-hmm. We have done much in this world through our analysis, through the f- the, the gathering of data, and then if but you've gathered a- enough data, you can probably make predictions about what frogs like it would do. Well, you're talking about that movie Moneyball, aren't you? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, we can. You've gathered data, and you they gotta get need, on base. Yeah, uh-huh. you don't need someone who can uh, uh, who can hit and throw. Uh, you just need someone that gets on base. Yep, and um, you don't need to replace. Uh, all of those runs. You don't need to replace that player. You need to place that player's runs, right? It's a great movie. I love
0: that movie. It really is a good movie. It's a good you haven't movie. seen it, audience. Yeah. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Premise, so that they know what we're talking about, is they use data and realize that the way to win World Series is just find players who get on base. Kind not of. Not players who look good, not players yeah. who like make spectacular catches and can bring in fans. You want someone that gets on base and doesn't... Like, they use an algorithm, and then they win. Just, they just use
1: alternative de- metrics yeah. of analysis to find low-valued players. Players that were low value, but it could do something that they wanted to do with their new system. It's pretty cool. But the irony is, is that the, the Oakland Athletics never won the World Series. They got to the final, but the right. Yankees won with having just better players that they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on.
0: Now, that being so said. So the real answer is throw money at it. Yes. It is. Always but the
1: Boston answer. Red Sox did win the World Series and Later. broke the curse yep. using Billy this. Bean's analysis methods. Yep. So exactly. it kind of does work. Um, but it is kind of, you know, we should always realize that like Real Madrid's going to win anyway doesn't, you know, and the Yankees are going to win because they've got money. Anyway, yeah. um, so you can make, but you can make predictions about what um, you, yeah, you can have, you can make predictive models about this frog based on your analysis of this individual frog and frogs like it. You can have a little, you can have a bell curve of froggy behaviors based on your analysis of this frog and you could make uh, predictive models of if I go to this part of the world, chances are I'm going to find this frog there because he likes this kind of habitat, that kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Analysis, tremendously powerful. Um, the other, but, uh, the other part of the of the rational faculty that we have is dialectic, and dialectic is where the relationship between object and subject break down a little bit, and it is a different way of knowing. So, in our English language, we when we talk about the word knowing, we don't really have a word that denotes this concept. Um, Whereas, like, in French, you have connaître and savoir, and I'm assuming in other romantic languages, you have sort of uh, words about knowing that denote um, different kinds of knowing. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of a joke in English, because you go and you read the old King James, and it says that um, Adam lay with his wife and he knew her, Mm -hmm. and you're like... I hope you he knew her. Um, but, hey, what? Hey, 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 I know you know yeah, you. I seen you around. The garden. I seen you around, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, uh, yeah Eve, right? Yeah, rib, um, rib. <laughs> <laughs> say it right, rib. Um, but, but obviously, what the Bible is saying there is that there is a, a um, Adam has a knowledge of Eve experientially, and, and it's a euphemism. Um, we don't really have the word f- uh, of of this sort of deeper experiential knowledge, or a knowledge that comes through living with, or a knowledge that comes through um, through a relationship, and that's why dialectic is. And that's even Hamburg, what you were jokingly getting at. You're like, I want to know, I want to know this frog as an individual. I want to mm-hmm. know like his particular froggy habits. Does this individual frog like you know crickets, or does he like high places? You know. Is he and, sensitive about his lo- his short tongue? That's yeah, true. And is that true of all frogs or just particular individual frog? And that way of knowing only comes through dialectic and dialectic is the relationship through uh, the, the relationship, uh, the back and forth kind of relationship. And that's how you get to know uh, knowing something through living with it, knowing something through experiencing it. Um, analyzing something is not a... Um, Maybe Plato, or if you go back into the classical world, they may have put this into a hierarchy of knowledge, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, whereas the analytical knowledge was maybe a more basic and the dialectical knowledge was a bit of a higher knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think if, if you read enough, like definitely Socrates, when he's, when he's trying to know something, he puts more emphasis on the dialectic than he does on the analytical. And That's what he's doing. He's having dialogues um, back and forth with people, um, and um, for in the uh, to do dialectic well, if you want to know something uh, in a, in this dialectic way, you have to um, you sort of have to ex- accept it as it as a thing. Hmm, how can I say this? Um, okay. Um, Let's say you were trying to teach somebody about courage. You were trying to know what it means to be courageous, or you're trying to know courage. Um, An analysis of courage would be, let's compile a list of all courageous acts and look for similarities and differences. That would be an analysis of courage. Or an analysis of courage would be, you talk to somebody who did something courageous and you analyze – you ask them questions about their mental state at various times during that courageous act or even if you could, you could hook up di- you know, like diodes or something to their brain while they were in the stressful situation and you could maybe analyze the materiality of courage in the body while they were going through this thing and they decided to be courageous and you could sort of like measure the things that were happening in them, right? This is sort of the analytical side of things. It's pretty. Pro- A lot of that's kind of interesting. it will be kind of that is helpful stuff. Um, the other way of knowing about courage is is trying to be courageous.
0: Doing something scary. Is
1: doing something scary yeah. and and putting yourself into that situation and and doing that thing is knowing it sort of from the inside. Um, this is true if you were trying to understand. Um, well, it's it's like. The studying of the culture, by like watching movies about them or uh, reading bo- reading the books they they do, or studying their language, and then or, and then going and living in that country and being in in that culture for a long time. That is, it's it's where you are no longer the external object merely observing, but that you are in relationship with the thing that you are trying to know. And this is a a, a way of knowing something that is. Um, I don't know if you want to say it's deeper, but it's, it's, um, it's a different way of knowing. Um, David Hicks, in his Norms and Nobility a book where he's talking about education, he um, thinks that this dialectical way of knowing is very important in education. Uh, and I, let me just sort of read, I want to read a rather lengthy paragraph um, where he's talking about A dialectical-based learning versus uh, an analytical-based learning. Um, Let's see. Dialectical education implies that a learner cannot see all sides of a question until he has chosen one. But analytical education assumes that choosing one side blinds the learner to all others. In analysis, therefore, the learner cannot be held responsible for his knowledge because the means for making him responsible lie in an untouched set of moral or intellectual options. Adopting one option means ignoring all the others. Conscience plays no role. Thought and action exist apart from each other, the mind affecting to observe but not to participate in the acting out of ideas. Fearful lest its participation should prejudice learning, yet ignorant that participation is essential in bringing together thought and action for responsible learning. For this reason, the value-free approach of analysis warps education by methodically straining out the normative nutrition in life and letters, and by sacrificing the transcendent, life-transforming value of knowledge to a dead set of utilitarian options and objectives." Whereas the value-free stance is useful in analysis at the low material level of being, it is a disastrous position to try to live from. So basically what he's saying there is, if you want to know courage fully and deeply, at some point you need to... Give it the old college try. Yeah, give it the old college try and try to be really, courageous. Really make a swing yeah. at it. Um, and, and that line at the beginning where he says, like, dialectical education implies that a learner cannot see it's, it's, cannot see all sides of a question until he has chosen one. So it's almost like you can't know, really know about, let's say you're, you're taking opposite views on a situation. You can't really understand Pacifism. If you wanted to be like a pacifist and you really wanted to hold on to that as an intellectual idea, um, you couldn't study the morality of war as just analytically and say like, well, I don't have an opinion. I don't really – I don't have an opinion on whether or not I should be a pacifist or whether or not I should be someone who is OK with some sort of just war theory. I'm going to be an, a um, an unimp- un opinionated observer just asking questions and analyzing it until I can come to a conclusion. But uh, Hicks's claim is you're, ne- you're never really going to know a side, and, and you're, and, or not even just a side, you're never really going to know both sides until you've tried to live as one side, until you've sort of said, I am I'm going to hold on to a pacifist view of ethics Um, And until you do that, you're never really going to uh, fully understand both the pacifist side of things and the just war person side of things until you sort of like had to defend it through living it.
0: Or at least that it'll be your knowledge will be devoid of any nutrition. Yes. That's, um, what, that's what I gathered from his thing is that you can know those two sides, but until you pick yes. a side, you are starving out you are the real gonna, end of learning.
1: You're gonna, um, you're sacrificing the transcendent and life-transforming value of knowledge to a dead set of utilitarian op- opinions and objectives. In other
0: words, why learn about those two things if you aren't eventually going to pick a side? Yeah. Um, that was my, my question mm-hmm.
2: was, are you supposed to go into the conversation with a view or is it that you're supposed to come out of it? Was that like, because I, I could just... His point is more that um,
1: you need to accept, you need to sort of accept a view by the end. uh, Almost at the beginning. you almost need to like accept a view at the beginning to know both views by the end.
0: Hmm, I don't know if I. I don't know if I agree with that conclusion. He's. I think he's just saying, if all we do is the analytical, then what you end up with is yeah, sure, knowledge. Mm -hmm. I I know about just war theory and I know about pacifism, Mm -hmm. but it, it. if I, unless I ever pick a side, it doesn't do anything for me, right. and I'll never know it as thoroughly yep. as I could. That's fair. So yep. like it's, yeah, it's that's just that's the a dead set of utilitarian value. That second part is it, and I will never know it as thoroughly as I could. And so I don't, I don't think I have to like before I understand what those are, pick a side. Mm-hmm. Just more theory, I think. Mm-hmm. I think knowing them is fine, but without taking that next step, it becomes dead knowledge. Yeah, I have it. It doesn't affect me in any way. Mm-hmm. Just like with courageous, I could know what courage is. I could know it's one of the virtues. I could know what happened, but unless I, unless I, at some point. Apply it to my life, it's just dead knowledge. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, So, the well, the the educated person, according to Hicks uh, and going back, uh, is is the person that has kind of like this mechanism of the inner dialectic kind of chugging along at all times. And what I mean by this is, um, um, well, David Hicks says the, the, the job of a teacher is to fill a student's head with voices, which sounds kind of creepy. But what he means by this is that um, since the, the, the dialectical way of knowing something is having that sort of back-and-forth relationship, and the best example of the dialectical playing itself out are like platonic dialogues. Um, Socrates, I'll even give you an example from Euthyphro, one of the dialogues. Socrates wants to know the essence of a thing. Mm-hmm. And so he is, his whole life is he is looking for people who claim to know something. And so he goes, so claims to have knowledge. And so in Euthyphro, he bumps up with somebody, it's with this guy named Euthyphro. And Euthyphro is essentially like a smarmy religious snake oil salesman. And he's somebody that claims to know what piety is. Mm-hmm. And Socrates is like, awesome, this is great. Isn't I'm... he the
0: guy that turned in his dad? Yeah, yeah.
1: he's like, Euthyphro, this is awesome. Because I'm being put on nice. trial for piety. And we yeah. have, a, we have a, an episode on Euthyphro earlier. Yeah. But um, in it, uh, Socrates says, hey, Euthyphro, you know what piety is, right? And Euthyphro's like, yep. Socrates says, what is it? Got that nailed to the wall. Yeah, and Socrates <laughs> says, what is it? And Euthyphro says, it's what I'm doing right now. And Socrates says, that's unhelpful. Um, uh, can you give me a more precise definition? And Euthyphro says it's everything that it's what the gods love. what the gods love is pious. And, Euthyphro, and then Socrates asks the, the great question, do the gods love it because it's pious? or is it do we call it pious merely because the gods love it? In other words, do the gods sort of have this frivolous um, dis- whatever the gods in their, in their frivolous nature love, we call piety, or are the gods recognizing, a element in, an, in a thing that some deeper it, thing, some deeper thing that is pious. And Euthyphro doesn't he doesn't he point out also that the gods don't always agree yes, on what the good yes. idea is? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And he says we, well, and then Euthyphro says no, it's what the gods agree on. And so Socrates says, well, if the gods agree that there are five books on the table, is that pious? And Euthyphro's like, I don't like you, Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> leave me alone, man. Yeah, I'm going to court on. right yeah. now. Um, and so take a shower. Basically, they get to the point that um, that. Uh, piety isn't, f- the reason that gods like it is because there is something that we call piety and Socrates is like, all right, that's what I want to know. Don't just give me examples, show me the thing itself and Euthyphro gets frustrated with Socrates and leaves him. Right. But what Socrates is trying to do with that questioning with, with, uh, with Euthyphro is he's trying to chip away, so the dialectical way of knowing something is the chipping away of everything that it's not in hopes that you can get to what the thing is. Now, the jury is, I think, still out on whether or not the dialectical approach, through its sort of negative action, it's always removing what it's not, right? And dialectic is kind of like a chipping away. You can't see me on the... Uh, YouTube can. When YouTube I, when I looks I boasts, like a like, uh, years later. I'm like a bad... I'm like a little mole, moving, uh-huh. moving dirt away. Uh-huh. So it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, in hopes that you can get to what it is. And it's unclear whether or not pure di- dialectic can ever get to... Like, you can never get to the thing that it is. It can just tell me what it's, all the things that it's not. And this is sort of Socrates' eternal frustration, is that you can never get to what the thing is.
0: Weirdly enough, mm -hmm. Socrates actually often just posits, here's what I think it is. Yes,
1: and this is perfect. And so, when, so so, um, I think when modern, so when people read Socrates, if they say, oh, well, that life basically is you can never get to a sure statement about anything because you're analyzing it and you're just always going to get in circles and you're never going to get to the core itself and we can never get to the realm of the forms to be able to see the thing for its pure essence and you're never going to know. And you're just always going to be guessing or you're always going to be in the cave or whatever. Um, but Socrates doesn't, him, the character doesn't live that way. Right. Socrates actually believes things. Um, one thing that Socrates believes is, and, and, we're, uh, um, and we're getting to this, how dogma works in the soul, sorry, how um, dialectic works in the soul, is that Socrates, actually, he takes statements as uh, axioms or takes statements as, like, baseline things, like just, a life of justice is better than a life of injustice. He eventually proves that. Uh, um, he proves but, it with the Republic. But he proves it by saying that unjust things hurt you and just things, and just things help you. And so maybe the thing that he takes as an axiom is people don't want to hurt themselves on purpose. Yeah. There's something that he mm-hmm. gives. Um,
0: but Socrates... Some, something is self-evident.
1: Yes. Socrates eventually says that there are self-evident things. And um, and the educated person or, or the person who is using reason in the classical sense is not just using reason analytically to gather data and get bell curves. Um, uh, and gets data science degrees. Thomas, mm-hmm. thank, I'm just, you. I'm no. thank you. I just kidding. Thank you. But the, the 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 person who is also has a a well developed rational soul, is using dialectic, uh, using that um, using that question is testing the the given statements about the world, and so in the Greek world uh, they, they had this word called dogma, and all dogma is is um, Let's see uh, if we have a, a definition of dogma. Um, dogmas, from the Greek meaning that which seems good. Um, so, um, the student, or the, the, ration, the person who has a, a, a functioning rational soul,s what they have to do is they accept the dogmas of life and live according to them, but are always testing them with dialectic. So, for example... Um, you accept the, so the dogmas of life are the, the, like, the, the other, the the, 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 the common sense things about life that come out of the stories, like, um, um. Treat your mom nice. Treat you, yes. Honor your parents. Um, uh, don't tell lies. Um, the stuff that you sort of populate children's books with. Right. Um, uh, um, it is better, you know, uh, um. It's better to do things the right way than the fast way or any of those little Aesop's fables or any of those um, those things that seem good that can't be necessarily like proven logically, but are sort of the accepted things in life. Like, um, yeah, like uh, uh, like um, cheaters never prosper Mm -hmm. or um, or it is better to to live a life of virtue than to live a life of vice. Um, this is what they're wrestling with at the beginning of the Republic. Uh, is it better to be just or unjust? And all, the, all Socrates' students are like, we want to believe that it's better to be just because they say that seems right or that's the given statement. That is the thing that gets put out there. And then Socrates is testing it by saying, okay, well, let's test this. And then he's talking about the nature of it, uh, the nature of justice. And by testing it, he's using that dialectic. He's asking questions. He's, he's, he's trying to understand through the chipping away of what isn't. And this is, sup- is supposed to be the inner life of the rational person is you have analysis, but you're supposed to also have this inner dialectic that's always going. It's not that you're cynical and skeptical and you're always questioning. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what a lot of people, at least for a long time, that's what I thought sort of the intellectual life would lead you to is just like – cynicism and skepticism where you're always questioning everything and you're sort of being that like first year undergraduate philosophy punk. Right. That's just super annoying. That's just like, well, what if we're just brains in jars you can't prove or not. So <laughs> I can like give into my, to pa- my girlfriend so I can give into my passions, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, you're just a
0: brain in a jar too.
1: Why are you yes. so mad? So, uh, uh, but in the classical world, the, this, the, the sort of healthy, rational soul, accepts the dogmas and lives according to them while always testing them in their life hmm. through dialectic okay. and that's what he's getting at that's what uh, Hicks is getting at by saying dialectical education implies that a learner cannot see all sides of a question until he has chosen one and let me see if I if I can find a good pull quote where he's talking about our relationship with dogma um, well let me let maybe this paragraph will help All of life is the student's laboratory for dialectical learning. Dogmas, from the Greek meaning that which seems good, are his hypotheses. He seldom chooses them. They are thrust upon him by his teachers, by the old writers, or by the very nature of life itself. The obvious example, as Kant pointed out, is the dogma of free will underlying all human behavior. No one has ever scientifically verified free will nor has the dogma ever relaxed its grip on the average man seeking to carve out a moral and purposeful life, despite the attacks levied against it by deterministic philosophers in the name of experimental science. Dogmas like free will are not value preferences or moral options, but firm convictions received on authority, since dialectic begins with sincere acceptance, not skeptical detachment.
2: Hmm.
1: Once he receives a dogma... The student of the dialectic begins in his life and learning to verify it. At the same time, challenges and contradictions to the dogma occur, altering the original dogma, reforming it. Conscience compels the student to act on these reformulations, to take responsibility for what he knows, and to be constantly renewing his dialectical quarrel with life and letters. Rather than prepare the student for the carefree outer life he wants, Dialectical learning awakens him to the quarrelsome inner life he must have if he is to preserve and enlarge his frail humanity. I mean that's, that's good that's such, it's, just, I mean, it's such a good paragraph. It's such an amazing book. The trouble is is that book the whole book is like paragraphs like that. So yes. it's like trying to it's like trying to drink a pint of espresso that like you yeah. just can't do it. <laughs> um, but this is but, um, so when we're talking about the rational faculties and man should be guided by reason, we're not just meaning that, as my students often take it, that man should be like AI robots that are just using statistical analysis to make conclusions about what should happen. Right. If you do that, well, then you can get into – well, you can become Russ Konlakov, uh from Crime and Punishment. You can get to conclusions like I can murder this old woman and take her money and help, help the less fortunate and I am maximizing happiness in the world. Um, even though I have to, like, do one subtraction, <laughs> right. a well, person. three. Yeah, three. Yeah. Whoops, whoops. whoops. <laughs> um, right? Bad math. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, the dialectical, you know, at some point, yeah, what, what, what Hicks is sort of saying is that this, this quarrelsome inner life that the rational faculty engenders in the person is, you sort of accept the dogmas of the world, the... The moral lessons from stories, the things taught to you by teachers, the the sort of the the givenness of your life, that you are a person that seems to have – that you have free will, that you have um, – um, that you, you know, you hear stories that the person who gives himself over to their appetites is someone who is going to be miserable. Mm. And you don't want to believe it because you want to be a wonderful exception, um, but you know you're probably not um, – uh, Hicks is saying that, 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 that the rational p- person, the person who has a healthy, rational faculty, is somebody that is going to accept those dogmas of life and use them as hypotheses and then live a life of testing those hypotheses by living them. Right. Um, and by doing that, uh, you'll have sort of um, this – well, uh, uh, you'll have what he's – what did he call it? That uh, enlarge his frail humanity as opposed to um, sacrificing the transcendent and life-transforming knowledge to a dead set of utilitarian options and objectives. Um, anyway, I, the, the point of the sort of what I, of this podcast was I wanted to redeem that word dogma. For people, because when we hear dogma, we think sort of like just sort of well, Dead,
2: right? Yeah, like, not, it's, uh, it's like bad ideology. Like it's it is bad. The, it, it is
1: always bad ideology. It's only followed
2: because it's tradition or yes, something
1: like that. That yeah. it's and that it's uh, dogmas are maybe uh, the things the, the hurdles of life that need to be overcome for mm-hmm. your self-actualization or whatever. Yeah. Um, whereas I think, um, and I I, I, I think people would be happier and healthier at least according to the classical world if they accepted dogmas not unthinkingly but said i want to know i want to test if the virtuous life is better than the not virtuous life because this is what all the stories say that we should be that the the, the virtuous man uh is is the good man Mm -hmm. that the good life is one of virtue i want to test to see if that's true not through analysis but through dialectic, by saying, I'm going to live vir- as virtuously as possible and fight for it in my life and test it in that way and know it that way right. and have this sort of like, you know, quarrelsome inner life in regards to virtue. And Hicks is saying that that, that is the, that in t- type of intellectual life is the path to a higher type of human existence than. Not doing that, then either just like you know, being the dead fish that goes along with the stream, or um, or letting yourself be sort of like um, enveloped by the darkness of your of your the animal side of your desires. Sure.
2: But I guess you said this, but dogma is still received, maybe critically is the wrong answer, wrong phrasing, but it is still considered before it's it's considered. Yeah,
1: yeah. You don't just um, there's probably the the person who sort of the person who receives dogma completely forms their life to live around it and do, and but spends a life not considering it has it's probably limiting themselves
0: in some way and is probably, hesitant. well, you may have accepted wrong dogmas or you may accept accepted wrong dogmas. Like I, I'm, I'm thinking of current zeitgeist dogmas in America, right? That we probably the three of us would not ascribe to. We don't want someone accepting those unthinkingly. Sure. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, you, must,
2: you must mean something different by dogma though. Um, or maybe you don't. At least in the, so uh,
1: maybe I, no, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess maybe we should, I should have spent some more time. Uh, We're teasing out what, what, Hicks is getting at when he means dogmas.
0: Well, Merriam-Webster, let's just give mm-hmm. a definition. Something considered as an established opinion or, two, a belief or body of beliefs concerning faith or morals laid down by a church. Yes. So you could probably... I'm more thinking of the, maybe the, the first definition is what Hicks is getting at. An established at. opinion. But the problem is we got a lot of established opinions that probably yeah. aren't good these days. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, then that's what he's saying, that they need to be tested. Yeah. Um, uh, and this is also why a education that considers that which is old old things is probably more helpful for for testing dogmas than recent things because there is a test of time that, like, the dogmas that have survived along like, a thousand years are probably more worthy of testing than dogmas that seem to be something, that received opinions that seem to be in vogue nowadays. Yeah. Um, so... Um, uh the things that populate all of you know, like like what we were saying, that that um all right. Aristotle says the happy person is the person who lives according to virtue. There's your dogma. Um uh um, to know it, you need to try to live to know it, you need to sort of accept it as a thing to, to live by. Okay, the the people who have come before have said that, that that which seems good is the virtuous life is the path to happiness. Um, take that as your hypothesis. Here's my hypothesis. I'm going to test it out by applying it in my life. Um, uh, that, that's more what Hicks is getting at. And I think that's why the, the, the value of, the edu- of an education that is going back and looking at the human conversation going back thousands of years as opposed to saying, like, what is in vogue today? Ignore everything else. Live by the sort of the things that are in vogue today. Because chances are the things that are in vogue today have probably been in vogue at some point in history and have not survived for for whatever reasons, because maybe they actually don't contribute to human happiness Mm -hmm. um, or whatnot. Um, Were
0: you thinking of something in particular, AJ? I mean, tolerance. like, like, living, let, like, let. Like, like, yeah, like tolerance as the as the ultimate virtue, right? That's probably not a great dogma.
1: Let everybody do whatever they want as long as they don't hurt
0: you. As long as you can express yourself and not hurt yes. anyone else.
1: Um and um uh yeah. So if you, if you sort of take that, it's like okay. Well, let's t- take that as a received. Uh, this is that which seems good, and um.
0: Run it through the old and, dialectic. And, and
1: run it through the old dialectic and and accept it as as um as, you know, live according to it, but don't just unthinkingly live according to it. Actually test it out in, in life and see if it enlarges it or not. Um, uh, that's probably a much healthier approach to, uh, to the intellectual life than just blindly accepting um, something, whether it's blindly accepting something from the old world uh, or, bl- or conventional morality or whatever, or blindly accepting something that's in vogue today. Um... Anyway, that's, 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 those are my thoughts. Or that's sort of what I, what, yeah, when you hear the platonic soul, when you hear reason or talking about the rational faculties or an AJ's podcast, when, when um, Aristotle says, reason is that which differentiates us from the animals. It doesn't just mean the ability to do math or to count or to do analysis. It's, it's this thing as well. It's to, it's to, um, to have that, to have a knowledge that comes through experiencing something by taking it as a true thing and then t- spending time testing it while living with it, uh, it's a way. It's you know, it's the way of knowing that is. Um, you know, it's like the taste and see, as opposed to like weigh and measure.
0: Right. Well, it's, it's yeah. looking or to to use C.S. Lewis, it's looking at versus looking along. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I can I can look at the light beam or I can look at the lens and see mm-hmm. what, or I can look through it and mm-hmm. see what the world looks like through that view. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's, that's those, that's what I got.
1: I don't know if we're short or long, but that's all I got.
0: Okay. I right. mean, this has been classical stuff. You should know, you can reach out to us at C L S S C A L stuff on Twitter, or you can send us an email at the of classical stuff.net. You can always patronize us at patreon.com slash classical stuff. And there you can find our in-between episodes and monthly AMA, some other cool things, and yeah, that's that's what's happening. Cool. Any other last thoughts, boys? Any Classical Stuff we got wrong? We oh, never make sure. mistakes. No. I'm sure we did. Great to hear we're doing fine. All right, uh, yeah, this is the boys of Classical Stuff signing off. Bye.